Welcome to the Highland Bridge Builders Podcast. Join us as Scott Frizzell brings us part two of book four from Mere Christianity, Beyond Personality or First Steps in a Doctrine of the Trinity. All right, morning everybody. So last week when Kyle posted the podcast, he said it was the greatest lesson he'd ever heard, which is really heaping the pressure up on whoever has to follow that. So Kyle's not here today. I assume he'll be listening to the podcast at some point, and hopefully he'll think this is like top ten. Um, real quickly, though, first, fun little game uh, on guessing the purpose for something. Uh, the first one is easy. Can you tell me what the purpose of the 57 on the Heinz 57 bottle is? The spot where you hit it. The spot where you hit it, right. Makes the ketchup come out better or whatever's in there. Right, so you hit it there. What about the hole on the top of a ballpoint pin cap? Anybody? Choke on it. Yes, actually. I thought it was like air pressure. I don't know, but it's for choking uh, or to prevent choking. Uh, Okay, next one. Next one. There we go. Okay. I don't know how to phrase this question without giving it away. Anyone know something weird about this? I didn't know that either. You guys are sharper than me. Yeah, you can you can make the Chinese takeout box into a plate. So do that next time you get takeout. What is this for? This weird pocket. Change? Pocket watch. Pocket watch, yes. Now I feel the need to invest in a pocket watch. Yes. Um, we could do a history lesson on all these, but we're not going to mess with it. All right. Uh, I couldn't find a way to ask this question. It's just, did you know that the exit sign, like the number on top, if the smaller box like is aligned with the left-hand side of the sign, that means you exit to the left. But if it where it says, like, exit 14 is aligned with the right, you go to the right. And actually, there's, there's even ones where it's centered, and it means you stay in the middle. I always look at the arrows, but apparently that works too. Also, tabs on the end of an aluminum foil box. I didn't even know there were tabs on the end of an aluminum foil box, but apparently it keeps it from popping out. Is that the last one? Okay. So, weird stuff. But the idea being, there's some things that you can know them or know that they exist, but if you don't know what their purpose is or what you're supposed to do with them, they're doing absolutely nothing. For many people, until they find out eventually, right, the 57 on the Heinz bottle is decorative, but it's actually there for a purpose. Or the same thing uh, with the pocket watch pocket, should you be a pocket watch person, okay? So we've been talking about mere Christianity for the past few weeks, um, and C.S. Lewis has been laying out the theology of Christianity in the most basic, big Christian sense, right? Not in a denominational sense, but in a really big, meta-level picture. And at the very end, so today we're looking at the last half of books four, he says, okay, so now I've told you all this really important information, but what is its purpose, and what are you supposed to do with it? Because if you can't take all this good stuff that C.S. Lewis has given us and taken it to an application phase, then what's the point of knowing it? Okay? It's the same purpose. Um, so when I was in grad school um, and I was getting ready to write my dissertation, I his- was in history grad school, uh, one of the rules about your dissertation is that it can't be something anyone else has ever written about, which is kind of problematic if you think about it because you think most everything has been written about in some way, right? Um, so instead, you have these dissertations which are just on the most micro of topics. Like, well, I know someone's written about Andrew Jackson, but has anyone written about Andrew Jackson's third cousin and what we know about him? 
there's my dissertation, right? So they have these really small, infinite-level topics, uh, and the idea is that you still have to be able to make, an make a reasoning for why it matters to everyone else. So when I'm doing my dissertation, I'm working on, I was, I was looking at school busing in Memphis, and man, I got a lot of useless details about that that I can share with you, right? I know exactly which schools were busing and where they were busing to and how many kids were being bused. Uh, which on its own probably doesn't do that much for me. In fact, it's probably considered generally useless information. But if I'm able to put it in a broader context, right, and connect it to the other pieces, I'm able to make an argument out of it and say, this is actually telling us some really interesting things about race in Memphis in the 60s and 70s, right? So that's what we're trying to do today is take all these big informational topics that C.S. Lewis gave us in books one through three and the first part of book four and say, okay, so now what do we do with it? So, uh, who liked to play pretend growing up? Come on, come on. Like five people, that is not true. You people are going to have to wake up and participate. Yes, we all play pretend. Anyone want to share their favorite thing to pretend to do? Let me rephrase that. Somebody share their favorite pretend thing to do? Come on. The floor is lava. Yes. Great game. What else? Pretend to be someone, do something, anything? Superman. Superman. There we go. All right, everyone likes to be a superhero. Anybody else? I played wedding. Wedding. <laughs> did it go according to plan when you actually got married? Or did you change your mind by then? Oh, change your mind. You changed your mind. Okay. I think playing pretend is something we're all kind of, kind of big on when we're younger, even if not many of you are going to admit it today. Um, how about the Children's Museum? I think my favorite thing about finally having kids is getting to go back to the Children's Museum now and not be thought of as a creeper. Like, I can go play in the Children's Museum because that's what I want to do. Um, I love watching my kids play there. I was really shocked when I went there and it was way awesomer than when I was there as a kid. But what are your favorite things to do at the Children's Museum? The grocery store. It's probably one of the best parts, right? Okay. Grocery store. Anyone else remember anything else in the Children's Museum? The wire cage platform things. The skyscraper. I was. Um, my sister told me that she got stuck in that. I don't think that was true, but because of that, I was terrified of it. Like I was going to get stuck and not be able to get down. Okay, so climbing, the grocery store, right? I think what the Children's Museum does so well is it like enables kids to pretend even better. Like you're already pretending at your own at home, and like you can have this totally invisible thing going. But when you go to the Children's Museum, like you got the best set ever. Like now they've got this. Uh, my my oldest daughter's favorite room is the music room where she goes in and they put her on. She stands in front of a green screen and it puts her with all these backgrounds and she gets to sing all of her favorite Disney songs with the microphone and they've got costumes because she wants to be a star, right? And she wants to be on stage. And it so the Children's Museum kind of empowers our pretending. Why do we like to pretend? Do you think? What is it that draws kids to pretend? It's exciting. Okay. What else? They might not like reality. They might not like reality, right? So it's escapism for sure. Why else? Kids don't have a lot of power, so it kind of gives them the power to do whatever they want. Okay. It gives them power. What do you mean by that? Like... <laughs> Sorry. I started thinking about it after you said it. It gives them power, right? How does it give them power? Better question. It gives them authority. I'm going to pause right here because you're hitting where I want you to go. It's a good job. All right? Yeah. Uh, 
isn't there something about pretending that makes you feel like cooler as a kid, like bigger and awesomer, whether it's because you're Superman or because you can check out at Kroger like an adult, right? Like, mom never lets me do this, but now I get to do it, right? I get in trouble when I help my daughter check out at the Children's Museum Kroger, right? Because she gets to push all the buttons and she gets to be the adult, right? There's power in pretend because it helps us start to take some power back, right? Kind of realize some potential. Pretend we're something we're not, but maybe that we want to be, whether that's Superman or an adult or really good at scaling skyscrapers. I don't know, Winston. I was trying to connect it there. Um, C.S. Lewis realizes this power of pretending, okay? He says, the first thing you need to do, all right, so you've got your theology. Your first step is we need to start playing pretend. So I started reading this section. I was like, I am on board, C.S. Lewis. Let's pretend. He says, you need to pretend uh, because pretending has great power. Now, there's two kinds of pretending, of course. One is the bad kind, where you deceive people, right? That's the pretending we're all scared of, where we find out the pilot of our plane was not actually go to pilot school and he's been pretending this whole time. That's a little scary. But he says there's a good kind of pretend, too, right? And maybe this is what we're talking about with the Children's Museum, where you're pretending to do something that you really want to do and you really want to do well, but you can't yet, right? Kid, kids really want to be adults, which just breaks my heart, right? But they do, because it's the one thing they're not. And they really want to do that, so the Children's Museum is the one place where they get to, I don't know, practice or start to do that. And C.S. Lewis says, our first step to be successful Christians is to pretend that we're actually sons of God. Because even if if you pretend really well, you can almost trick yourself into doing it. It's kind of like how powerful your mind is, right? How you can convince yourself that you're sick if you're not. I mean, you can pretend you're sick and know you're pretending, but you can also kind of freak yourself out a little bit, right? They've got articles on this kind of stuff because I read them this weekend, right? You can convince yourself that you're well or sick just by imagining it or thinking it in your head. And C.S. Lewis says if you start at that starting point, you're going to find out, excuse me, you're going to find out that you're one step closer uh, to being like God. I think there's some great examples of this for us. Daniel Day-Lewis, great actor. He's won more Best Actor Oscars than anyone, I think. He's got three, and he's only done a few huge movies, which is pretty impressive. But he's famous for being a method actor. So when he gets a role, he becomes the role all the time until the movie is over, which has got to be annoying if you live with this guy. Okay, in fact, his wife has given some great interviews about living with him when he was becoming Abraham Lincoln and how frustrating it was because he's walking around in like 19th century underpants and talking about the Union and how it must be preserved and going out to chop wood in the backyard. And his wife's like, can we just have dinner? Um, when, he's on set, when he's on set for filming Lincoln, Spielberg actually orders everyone on set to refer to him as Mr. President throughout the filming, even if they're not actually, like if they're just talking to him at like the snack line, which I'm sure he didn't go to. He was probably out like harvesting his own snacks outside or something. <laughs> but everyone refers to him as Mr. President. But for some reason, as weird as it might be, there's something kind of successful about what he does and his commitment. Because he's won more Oscars than anybody, so maybe there's something there, right? That something about him assuming and pretending that he really is this person and doing it morning to night until the role is over, there's got to be something there. He starts months beforehand, so we're looking at him turning into somebody else for nine months to a year, and somehow he ends up betraying that in a way that 
people consider is more real, right? So there's some value in that pretending in what he's doing. So C.S. Lewis says, if we pretend to be sons and daughters of Christ, then we're one step closer to actually doing it. Because what Eric made really clear to us last week, right, is that when Christ comes down to earth, right, and takes on human form, it's kind of the jump from being a human to being a slug, right? That's the, a similar type of jump from being godlike to down on human level, right? So that's a big jump. And so for us to suddenly imagine the opposite jump, right, that's going to take some pretty serious pretending, right? That's not something that you're going to go, oh, I'm going to be like a child of God this week, and I'm going to pretty much nail it by the end of the week. Uh, you have to start with pretending, but that's only that first step. But pretending is the only place you have to start because you don't know what it's like, right? You're the kid at the Children's Museum. You've never done this before. You want to, but you have no idea how it practically works, okay? So our step one of our application is to get pretending. Uh, C.S. Lewis is really clear to point out, though, that it's not like a 12-step program. It's not self-help, right? It's not something you could do on your own. That's the point of pretending. The first step is just trying to be something you're not, but knowing that that's not going to be enough, right? Knowing that in order to be successful at following Christ, we're going to be doing some pretty, need some pretty serious help. Uh, so, is Christianity easy or hard? That's not a fair question, is it? No one wants to answer it. I won't make you. It's hard. It's hard, right. But it's also easy, right? Or at least that's what C.S. Lewis says, and he's pretty smart, or was pretty smart. He's dead, right? So we, we kind of have to agree with him, right? C.S. Lewis says that Christianity is actually a paradox. He says, on some ways, it's the hardest thing you can do, and in some ways, it's the easiest thing you can do. He says, uh, and you see this in the Bible if you look at it too, right? On the one hand, Jesus is in the gospel telling us to take up our cross and follow him, which is kind of the definition of difficult, right? If you think about what all that entails, the idea, not just the act of physically carrying a cross, right? But the symbolism there, do what I'm doing. Oh yeah, that's easy, Jesus. Thanks. Uh, but on the other hand, in the gospel, Jesus says, uh, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So what's going on there? And C.S. Lewis starts to draw out this contrast. He says, the problem is the first step is really hard. And the second step is really easy. Now, it's confusing because the steps kind of happen simultaneously, so they blend a little bit. But he says, so step one is that we're pretending, and in order to successfully pretend, we're going to have to die to ourselves, which just sounds sad, right? But what does it mean? To, what do you think it means to die to ourselves? What does that even look like? I feel like that's something we throw around in church a lot, but what do you think that looks like on a practical level? To be selfless. To be selfless. Okay, that's good. Resist human instincts, yes. Selfless, resist human instincts. I think those are all right, right? And be guided by something that's bigger than us, right? Uh, without kind of that <coughs> hesitation moment, right? Where you're like, well, but I could do it this way. Or I could, could do this, right? Uh, so we have to die to ourselves. Uh, but step two, which is where it gets to be easy, because dying to ourselves is, you know, kind of hard. Uh, step two is where it gets easy. It says once you've died to yourself, all you have to do is sit back, and let Christ take over, and he will carry you there. And there's nothing easier than that. But getting to where you can be carried is kind of difficult. I would envision there's that really, um, there's the footprints in the sand. Is it a poem? I think it's a poem, yeah. Where, uh, you know, you're walking and you footsteps, and you're like, oh no, life is hard, and you look down and you don't just have your footprints, you have Jesus' footprints that he was carrying you, or that one, right? 
I think that's the idea, but I think most of the time when we're asking Jesus to carry us, we're kind of like a two-year-old. You know, we're like flailing and trying to jump out and dragging because we don't know exactly what we want. He says, but if you can die to yourself successfully and you can step back and relax and let go of those things that you want, right? If you can be truly selfless, then there's nothing easier than sitting there and being carried. But it's mastering that art of actually sitting there. That's not incredibly easy. Um, Sometimes when I'm driving around town with my kids and we get stopped at a red light and there's someone waiting at the corner asking for money, sometimes I roll down my window and I give them some money. But sometimes I don't. And sometimes, I think, I get thinking about it, right? I don't know if you guys do this. I'm going to assume some of you are bad like me and do this, right? I'm analyzing each person. Like, is this person for real? Am I getting scammed if I give to this person? Like, what's, Which I think, probably on a deeper level, comes from me saying, is it worth me giving away my money? But then I've also got my kids in the back seat, and I'm thinking, okay, but I don't want them to think I'm bad. I want them to know that giving to people is good, but I don't know about this guy. Right? And I think that's just kind of an example of some of those things we duel with in our head if we're really trying to die to ourselves, right? Because if we have died to ourselves and we're letting Christ carry us, that's not even a thought, right? Because A, you're not thinking, that money is mine. What should I do with it? Or is this worth it? And you're not concerned about what other people, whether they be little people or big people, watching you are thinking, Right? because you've successfully died to yourself and you're being carried. But I think most of the time we haven't really achieved that. C.S. Lewis has a great metaphor for it. He's a master of metaphor. Uh, And he says it's like if you're a piece of wood and you are uh, painted, right? Things look great on the outside, but on the inside you're still a piece of wood. You're still the exact same way that you were. You know all the behaviors to exhibit to appear to be doing things correctly. But you're truly walking the Christian path if instead of being painted, you've been coated with, a, with stain. Because the stain seeps into the grains of the wood, right? It's not a surface level covering. So as it seeps down, and he calls it a good infection, which Eric mentioned to us last week. If it's a good infection, right? And it changes the grain of the whole wood all the way through. And by doing that, you're no longer the same way that you were before, right? Okay. Um, I think the problem is when we look at this idea of staining, right, and changing completely, it sounds an awful lot like perfection, which is not something we're supposed to be able to do, right? So what are some examples of things that we look at in the world as perfect or close to perfect, my head went to sports first, if you need a tip. What are some perfect things? Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Thanks a lot. Thank you. A no-hitter, right? He pitched a perfect game. Well, a no-hitter, yeah. yeah. Not really a baseball fan, but I know they're different. Okay, what else? The one thing I thought of first when I was thinking about like when we talk about things that are perfect was the New England Patriots and Bill Belichick. Because every time they're on some run and everyone asks Belichick, well, are you going to make the season undefeated? What does Belichick always say? 
He's like, we're going to do our job. Next week, play the 49ers. We're going to take care of the 49ers. And then the next week they ask him, he says, you know, we're going to do our job. Next week, we're going to take care of the Ravens. We're looking at the Ravens right now. We're looking at next week. Right? He never talks about it. Any idea why? Yeah, well, me too. I'm with you. He's not perfect. And he doesn't want his players to start thinking about that 16-0, and 0, right? Because, yeah, do your job. Focus on today. Because if you start thinking about the big picture, man, you're opening yourself up, right? Players get distracted. Why do you think they get distracted by that, though? Right. Yeah, big time, right? Because when you're on the hook and you're potentially reaching something close to perfection... Don't you think everyone's going to lock up a little bit? Everyone gets kind of antsy? I think that's one of the reasons we're scared to admit that we're supposed to be trying to be perfect, right? Because, man, it makes it look worse when you screw up, right? If people know that you're trying to do it. It's like when you do something really embarrassing in public and then you try to play it off like you weren't doing anything at all, right? Have you ever done that? Uh, Oh, I, I intentionally tripped on the curb, right? I was just doing this, right? You don't want people to know that you were trying to do something when you failed it. And C.S. Lewis says, we are called to be perfect, and guess what? You can attain it. And I kind of double-take when I read that. I was like, I don't know about that, C.S. Lewis. He's like, you can attain it if you have died to yourself and you're being carried. Which is true, right? We can do all things through Christ. But the reality of it is, how successful are we going to be at dying to ourselves, right? That's where we're going to struggle. But if you can get past that perfection, yeah, we could definitely do that if we're just letting Christ carry us around. Um, but I think... More often than not, we're nervous about going for perfection. Maybe for the same reason that, you know, coaches don't like to tell their players about streaks or you don't talk to the pitcher when he's got a good game going, right? Because you don't want them to get in their heads. We've got issues with pride. We don't want to think about what happens if we mess this up. What is everyone going to think about us? Because think more often than not, we're thinking a lot about what other people think about us and what other people think about our Christianity, right? The uh, It's like uh, whenever... So I'm I'm principal at a school, and whenever we're given a tour and they... Oh, yeah. Excuse me. Sure. Why? Why? I think, I think that's a great question. We're about to get there, I think. Let me pause you for a sec, okay? Uh, so I'm a principal, and when we're given tours, okay? So I'm a principal at a Christian school. So this should be the number one place that I should not be concerned to say hey, let's talk about Jesus, right? You're touring a Christian school. You kind of know what you're getting into, right? But all the same, sometimes when I'm given, when I'm like, I've been pulled in on a family tour and I'm talking to the family, my first thing to talk about is not, well, let me tell you, number one, we're a Christian school and that's the best thing we've got going on here and here's why I think that's so important for us to get to talk about Christ. Normally, I'm talking about like programming and elective options and, well, and we can send you out with this kind of a GPA, right? And I thought my, I've thought about that a lot as I've been preparing for this. Like, why do I do that? Like, why is that not the first thing out of my mouth? And I'm thinking because I'm trying to portray myself the way that people trying to think. What do these people want to hear? Right? Maybe it's me being a little selfish and thinking I want people to uh, come to my school. Right? I want my enrollment to be sta- stable. Right? Or, or maybe maybe I'm just thinking, well, what do they think? I don't want to scare these people away. Let me hook them and then I'll give them the Jesus. Right? Because we certainly have kids who aren't. But I don't know. I think I find myself a little self-conscious. Maybe you do too. Wondering, 
if I say this out loud, what are people going to think? And I think this kind of catches with what Eric was saying right back in service, right? We all know people that probably need to hear us, but we second-guess ourselves when we have the chance to say something, right? Whether it's someone we don't know or family. So, back to this, what makes us so nervous? I know it's a really hard question. I think, uh, like most things, it comes back to pride for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just I care a lot about what people think of me because I, I don't know, I guess I, I think that I'm great. Yeah. And I want everybody else to think that I'm great as well. Well, yeah. You know? When it was two weeks ago when we talked about, was it book three? C.S. Lewis says, the greatest sin is pride. I mean, if that's at the root of it, right, we are concerned. We want to be known as good at what we do or at who we are. So the idea that being, I don't know, I think we spin it to ourselves, right? The idea that being too open, too fast makes people lose that. But if we ease them in, then we can do it. But I think sometimes that's lying to ourselves a little bit, right? Because we start easing them in, but do we ever go past that, right? It's like, I don't know if I'm ready for that yet. I think there's some serious pride involved in that. All right, C.S. Lewis has another great metaphor. As I said, master of metaphor. This one's for the dentists in the room. He comes out and he says, God is like a dentist, which is not what you guys needed to hear. Um, God is like a dentist. He says, when I was little, I would have a toothache, but I wouldn't tell my mom about the toothache unless it was really, really bad. But I knew if I told her I would get medicine and it would be better. But I also knew if I told her I would get medicine and it would be better, and then I would have to go to the dentist and the dentist would do more work and it would hurt, and eventually it would all be fixed. But it had to be bad enough for me to take that last step, right? I just wanted the toothache to go away, but I knew if I went into my mom about the medicine, she'd take me to the dentist, and the dentist would do more than just a toothache. There'd be things to get pulled, or oral surgery, or something crazy going on. He says, God is like a dentist because you might go in with one problem, right? We come to God and we say, you know, God, here's my great struggle, and I need some help with this, right? And I'm here on this path to get better at this. But God's not going to stop with the one thing, right? If you're following like you're supposed to, if you're pretending, you're now surrendering yourself, being carried, right? And you go to God, he's not going to just take what you want him to fix. He's going to take the stuff that you don't want him to touch, that you didn't think there was anything wrong with. And he's going to start reshaping it and changing it and morphing it, right? Because we're talking about pretending to be something that is nothing like we have seen on this planet, right? Remember Jesus down here to slug, right? We're talking about going way up to something we can't even imagine. So, of course, the moment we step in and ask for some help, we open ourselves up to it, you're going to be changing things you didn't even know needed to be changed. And I think that scares us too, right? That's another reason we don't want to surrender to ourselves. We think that We've got it figured out, right? I've got myself figured out. I've got this problem and this problem, and I'm going to take care of these problems, and then we'll be peachy, right? But God, he's got a bigger plan involved in all of that. Um, If we're going to be trying to be perfect, yeah, we're talking about a lot of hard-to-do stuff today. We're going to try to be perfect. Uh, The one trap I think we could fall into is thinking that we're now somehow safe because of a pretty good record of behavior. Right? C.S. Lewis calls it niceness. Right, The idea that there are some genuinely nice people. Mm-hmm. They're just predisposed to be nice. They've got 
Uh, he even kind of references, you know, maybe it was how they were raised, maybe it's some of their personality traits that they innately have, but it's easier for them to be nice than other people. One of my sisters is like this. One of my sisters is the nicest person on the planet. Makes me look like a jerk all the time, right? She's always thinking of other people. My other sister's not so much. But this sister, definitely, right? I don't know what it was. Like, we were raised in the same house, in the same setting, but somehow she's nicer than me. Maybe she's just a better human being, right? But C.S. Lewis says there are nice people out there and there are less nice people. Some people are built, wired differently. But... Don't just assume that because somebody is nice, they're saved. He said, in fact, I believe it is more challenging for someone who is inherently nice to achieve salvation than someone who is inherently mean. Okay, he says, if there's someone who's inherently mean, has problems to overcome, those problems are staring them in the face, right? You know what they are, and you start working on them, and you're making progress. But if you're someone who's inherently nice, you're in real danger, right? And I think generally as church-going folk, we're probably all somewhat in that camp, right? There's nicer ones of us than others, right? But we're all somewhat in that camp. We all view ourselves somewhat as nice people. But he says there's a paradox within being nice, okay? He says, uh, because nice people know that they're nice, right? You know that you're doing good. And when you do that, are you not thinking of yourself more highly? Why are you doing good? Well, because I'm a nice person, because I'm supposed to. And he says, we need to stop thinking of being nice as having us having done something. Think about being nice as us just acting out what Christ is leading us to do. Because there's a danger if we think of it as we're being nice, so we're following, we're doing what we're doing, right? Action verb. We're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Because that's suggesting that we've got it figured out, right? He says there's a danger there. And he says, and that pride again, right? C.S. Lewis is very focused on pride. That pride is going to be an even greater stumbling block than someone who has a very open, obvious sin weighing them down. Um, he also says that it's these people with the uh, nice problem that are causing some of our greatest problems to Christianity from a marketing standpoint, right? It's all about marketing, but it's when you see nice people that, you know, they're fairly friendly, but uh, if they don't all have it figured out on the inside, right, or they're a little proud, or they're concerned about what others are thinking, that's not exactly enticing to potential believers, right? But when people come in with a spirit of humility and focus very much on, none of this is of me, but this is all of Christ, it can be much more enticing because people are drawn to try to figure that sort of thing out. Um... So we have to give ourselves up, pretend to be a son of a son of God, right? Give ourselves over to him and be created into something new. And I think it's important that we think of that term as being created, right? Because when we say it about ourselves, being created, that's actually a passive verb. Sorry for the English. Um, but it's because we're not the ones doing it, right? That is when action is being done to us, but we are not doing the action. And that's important. That's a key distinction. Because when we think of our faith walk as something that we are doing, we've already screwed up. Right? It's Christ who is working in us. And everything that comes out of us is just evidence of that. But whenever we think that it's because we're doing something right or we're doing something that needs to be done, 
we're already committing a pretty serious sin of pride and losing what we should be focusing on. C.S. Lewis does a really good job in the first half of the book, in the last few weeks we've looked at it, right, of kind of establishing the divinity of God, right? The, the idea that Christ, God, Holy Spirit, the Trinity, right, there's something higher and, and above what we are in a way that we can't be. So it makes perfect sense that when we get to the application phase and we're trying to put all the pieces together, that the answer would be, yeah, that thing that's higher than us that you want to be towards, right? You can't get there on your own. We know that, right? We said that in Bible school all the time. But what does that really mean for us when we start thinking about what we're doing, right? Um, and he's got another great example. He says, and giving yourselves away doesn't mean you're suddenly not you and you're just like this empty body, right, that's just spilling out Christ things, right? He says, it's like salt. If you find somebody in the world who has never had salt, right, and you give them a handful of salt and tell them to eat it, it's going to be pretty overpowering, right? <laughs> and so they eat this handful of salt. And they're like, ugh. And they say, and did you know that everything we eat in our world is seasoned with salt, lots of salt? They're going to think that everything tastes like that handful of salt they just ate. But it doesn't, right? Salt doesn't just, like, erase the flavor of something, right? We could make the observation, perhaps, that it draws the flavor out of what's already there. And he says, and Christ does the same thing with us. When you've surrendered yourself, when you're not thinking of you as doing the action, but it's you receiving what Christ is giving and sending it out to others, you're actually more you than you ever were before. And you're the you that Christ intended you to be in the first place, instead of something else. Um, I think it's a really good example. I think of uh, Peter in the Bible for this. I mean, if we know church history, right? In the book of Acts especially, Peter's this great preacher, right? He's baptizing 2,000 people after the Feast of Pentecost. He's got this great sermon that he goes on the road with. Big deal. I mean, dude's a fisherman. No matter how talented of a speaker he is, he, he can't have been that good that he just like came off of the boat and suddenly was like the greatest preacher ever, right? He had to surrender himself to Christ. And for him, we know, especially early on, that was not an easy life, right? Early in Acts, when they're facing all that severe persecution and he's just out there doing what he's supposed to do, not concerned about it, that's him surrendering himself. He's not being selfish in any sort of way. And God has transformed him into something greater. What God meant for him to be from the beginning, right? When Jesus tells him that he's changing his name to Peter, because on this rock I will build my church. That's God's plan. That's not who Peter is on the inside when they meet him. And that's where we are too. When we meet people, no matter whether we've been raised in the church or not, we're not on the inside who Christ wants us to be. Even if you've been raised in the church your whole life. Because we're all selfish. And we're all distracted by what we want. But if you surrender yourself to him in a way that you aren't thinking about your wants anymore, and you're not thinking of yourself as doing the action, right, as being the one who's making the change, then there's going to be some transformations coming over you that you weren't expecting. And a key of that is pretending, right? Because without pretending, how are you going to achieve all that? Because we don't even know how to achieve all of that. Um, I think... Looking through what Lewis said, we're wrapping up and then I'll get done so you can make sure we have some time to talk before we have to pick up kids for any of you who have those. Um, two things I want to kind of think about as we wrap up. 
I think there's two kind of big flaws we face as Christians, two challenges we face, right? I think the one, we've already talked about a little bit for us in this room, assuming we're good people, right? That we've got it wrapped up because we go to church and most of the time I roll down my window and give my money to the person at the street and I read the Bible stories to my kids, right? That we assume that we're good people and we've got it figured out. When maybe on the inside, it's not as pretty as it seems, right? Maybe we're that piece of wood that's been painted instead of a piece of wood that's been stained, right? We're doing the action instead of receiving it. So I think that's one. But I think the other one is, I think sometimes, uh, I think sometimes we find ourselves in a situation where Christians kind of get the woe is me narrative going on, right? We live in a time where Christianity is crashing, right? People are turning away from the church in large numbers. There's lots of those articles on Facebook. Why are millennials leaving the church? The church is going to die. What do we have to do, right? The world is turning against us. The world is more worldly than ever before, right? And that can kind of lead to like a, man, that stinks. Man, this is awful. C.S. Lewis has a really great passage. And remember, this is written... Back right, uh, he gives these speeches during World War II, and then they all get collected and published shortly after the war. And some of this is like you're reading it today, because he's talking about uh, the challenges that Christians face. And he says again and again, it, the world, has thought Christianity was dying. Dying by persecutions from without and corruptions from within, by the rise of Islam and the rise of physical sciences, the rise of the great anti-Christian revolutionary movements. But every time the world has been disappointed. Its first disappointment was over the crucifixion. The man came to life again. In a sense, and I quite realize how frightfully unfair it must seem to the world, that has been happening ever since. They keep on killing the thing that he started, and each time, just as they are patting down the earth on its grave, they suddenly hear that it is alive and has broken out somewhere new place. No wonder they hate us. I think Lewis has a great point. He's writing almost 70 years ago, but doesn't that feel the same? Where you feel like we're under attack, that Christianity is weak, there's people out there that say it's dying, right? But he says that's just when it's about to pop up somewhere new, stronger than it has been. Because it doesn't. It continues to come back and can't be kept away. So instead of acting in a narrative where suddenly we are victims and we are fighting a just war against a world that hates us and we are, we're losing but we're going to fight back strong, right? We're going to fight against these evil forces. Don't worry about fighting it. That's an active verb, right? Just submit. Do the opposite of what you think you should. Let Christ live through us. Do your thing. Feel drawn to speak out as he calls you, and you'll be impressed by what happens. And find that Christianity is not weaker than we think it is at all, and that it is about to bust up again, as Lewis said. Okay, real quick, I want to wrap up this one more quote from Lewis that I think this one's pretty good and it's about the work that Christ is doing in us and he's calling us so to put a bow on everything if we can right we know the theology we know logically because Lewis is a logical guy we've logically seen why this makes sense right but what do we do with this and it's the hardest answer right it's submitting it's giving up on that pride and the things that make us so concerned so here's what he says he says imagine yourself imagine yourself as a living house God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. 
Uh, he's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. I think when we think we've got it figured out, and we think we have a plan, and we know what Christ is building, that's when we throw ourselves into the wrong road, right? But instead, if we relax, if we pretend, if we submit, we'll find out that Christ is doing something even greater than we are imagining. And that is the great application of all this, I think. So, all right, that's it. Oh, I did, made it. Okay, good. Um, is anyone supposed to say anything? Announcements or something? Thank you for joining this week for the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. We hope to see you next week.